0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: The FBI will investigate threats to school board members.
2: Across the state, we've had board meetings disrupted with aggressive, harassing, verbally abusive protesters. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh
1: with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego County commits $9 million to combat childhood obesity.
3: To address the problem of childhood obesity, and I think obesity in general, it really takes a whole community approach.
1: Efforts are underway to save California's giant sequoias from climate change and wildfire. And another in-person festival is back, this time the San Diego Italian Film Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. A school board meeting shut down by protesters in Poway. Another meeting in Vista adjourned because people refused to wear masks. And a school board member in Coronado finds her address published on social media and her car vandalized. Now, the FBI has been tasked to look into incidents like these across the country. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced on Tuesday that federal investigators will work with local officials on what he calls a disturbing spike in harassment intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators. Joining me is Darshana Patel, a delegate who represents the California School Board Association and a trustee for Poway Unified School District. And Darshana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me today, Maureen. Can you tell us about your experience with one of these disruptions?
2: You know, the Poway Unified School District has been meeting virtually since the beginning of the pandemic, since the governor's order has allowed us to for the health and safety of both our staff and our public. And on September 9th, we had a regularly scheduled board meeting and it was duly agendized as a virtual meeting. So not open to in-person attendance, but we live stream it. And during that meeting, before we were even able to convene it, protesters pushed their way into our school district office, took over our boardroom, and did not allow us to convene our meeting. It was quite frightening for our staff, very unexpected. And it was a very disturbing situation, aggressive, hostile. And we weren't able to actually even convene our meeting and conduct business that night.
1: Now there were police in attendance at the Poway meeting as far as I've read, what did they do?
2: So police were called when the uh, protesters started getting a little aggressive and, and pushed their way into the room. It took them some time to arrive on scene. And at that time, only one officer showed up. And then that officer had to call for backup before entering the room. And even when once three officers were there, they still didn't feel that they had enough force to manage the situation. So it was about 40 minutes from my understanding until um, officers actually came inside the building to see what was going on.
1: And Darshana, what are you hearing from other school boards in San Diego and across the state about what's going on at these meetings?
2: So across the state, it's been, you know, we've had board meetings disrupted with aggressive, harassing, verbally abusive protesters, Northern California, Southern California, inland, coastal, mountains, deserts, you name it. It's its broad across our whole state and across the nation, in fact. What we're hearing is that these meetings are being disrupted and board members are not fully aware of what the process is. They call the police to help. And in some situations, the police are great. Their local officers work well with their school districts. And in several situations, they just haven't been that supportive. So a unifying message from the governor would really be helpful. And that's why CSBA has taken action to write a letter to our governor urging for leadership to have school boards protected by law enforcement.
1: What are the issues that are driving these outbursts?
2: Currently, it is across the board, it's the let them breathe movement. So this is this group of individuals who believe that masks are causing harm to children, which we, we know that there's no genuine physical harm that's caused to children by wearing masks. They believe that it's their individual right to not wear a mask. But the situation, the reality is for school districts in California, the governor has issued an indoor mask mandate and we are complying with the law what these protesters are doing is they're asking us to break the law and in fact doing it in an unlawful way by disrupting public meetings.
1: And what other issues out there are driving these outbursts? Is it also critical race theory?
2: Critical race theory is another one. And that one's it's fueled by a lot of misunderstanding and intentional disinformation being spread around what school districts are doing with critical race theory. And it's actually intended for the college or graduate school level. And it specifically deals with laws. That's not something we're teaching in public education. What we're doing is introducing curriculum through the lens of racial equity and justice. Do you have any sense that these disruptions are coordinated efforts? Well, they do really seem to be coordinated because it's essentially it's the same tactics and the same misinformation, the same types of harassment. It does seem very coordinated. And this is why... The National School Boards Association has asked President Biden and Mr. Merrick Garland to take a step in, which they have agreed to do. So now the Department of Justice is asking the FBI to investigate these situations. So it is being taken very seriously. And what are you hoping the new FBI involvement will do? It starts with um, inquiry. So the FBI will start investigations to determine whether there is a coordinated effort. And if there is, they will take the steps necessary to put a stop to this. This harassment, this verbal abuse, following board members and staff members, it's essentially preventing school boards from doing the work of the public on behalf of our students and children.
1: Now, there are critics who say that getting the FBI involved in what happens at school board meetings is an overreaction and will have a chilling effect on parents'
2: rights. What do you say to that? It's not that this is the first time as school boards across the nation have faced a very passionate public, but what it's escalated into is extreme disruption. California law has penal codes specifically outlining maintaining the peace at public meetings. And this is more about that. It's not about discouraging public input at meetings. This is about stopping hateful, threatening, violent behavior against elected officials.
1: I've been speaking with Darshana Patel, a delegate who represents the California School Board Association and a trustee for Poway Unified School District. And Darshana, thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
4: The coronavirus pandemic has upended our lives in all kinds of ways. And childhood obesity is no exception. The rates have increased since the start of the pandemic, disproportionately impacting communities of color. Acknowledging the problem, San Diego County earlier this week announced a $9 million partnership to fight childhood obesity. What impacts will these increased obesity rates have on our community? And what are some ways we should be thinking about tackling this complex issue? Joining me, is Dr. Guadalupe Ayala, Professor of Public Health at San Diego State and Director of the Institute for Behavioral and Community Health. Dr. Ayala, welcome.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate having a conversation on this topic.
4: You recently wrote an opinion piece in the San Diego Union Tribune where you call childhood obesity a threat. What did you mean by that? And why do you choose that word to describe it?
3: I describe it as a threat because our ability to be productive, happy, healthy human beings um, is in part driven by our health status and our well-being. And the concern we have is that with increasing rates of childhood obesity, you inevitably have increasing rates of obesity among adolescents and then adults. What does that lead to? Ultimately, it could lead to earlier death. Maybe even more so what we care about is just an inability to do the things we want to do in life, because we're either having to address significant health issues like diabetes and heart disease, or we're not able to be physically active with our kids because we don't have the mobility we might be able to have if we were not suffering with this condition.
4: Hmm. Give us a sense of where childhood obesity was in San Diego County before the pandemic and where it is today.
3: It's actually a little bit hard to speak about that because a lot of the sources of information where we would learn about increasing, whether the the rates are increasing or decreasing, were systems that were not not necessarily implemented during the pandemic. So let me give you one example is that there's a lot of information about child's health is collected when children are in school and when they are uh, studying remotely. There are less opportunities for us to be able to monitor the health of a child in normal ways. But what I can say is that the conditions that COVID highlighted in terms of lack of access to healthy options, in terms of lack of access to healthcare, those are things that exist and that make our ability to prevent or control childhood obesity really a lot harder. Let's talk
4: about that a bit more. I mean, what's the link between these rising childhood obesity rates and COVID-19?
3: What changed? We could even look in our own households, right? We were less likely to go out, more likely to sit and entertain ourselves in front of the television. Television itself is not necessarily a culprit. But if you're finding yourself sitting at home for four or five, six hours in any one evening, When you potentially could have been outside, maybe participating in some sort of community recreation or going to your local gym, that's where we start to see the impact. So we've become much more sedentary. When we're sedentary in front of the television, what happens? We tend to mindlessly eat and drink. And that then starts to create an internal change in our bodies where we then start to also crave those unhealthier foods or more foods or the, things that are, the foods that are bringing us comfort. Mm.
4: At the county's announcement of their childhood obesity initiative earlier this week, they seem to emphasize that the problem is about more than just an individual's choices. Uh, here's how Dr. Kelly Motadel described it.
5: When it comes to obesity, we need to consider barriers beyond individual motivation that make it hard to be healthy and active. It's hard to eat a nutritious diet when healthy foods like fruits and vegetables are hard to afford. And it's hard to be active if your neighborhoods do not have enough sidewalks or parks. And if they do have sidewalks and parks, do you feel safe enough to utilize and explore them? You know, framing it
4: as part of a larger societal issue, it can be hard to identify specific
3: solutions with so many issues involved. Where should we start? To address, I think, the problem of childhood obesity, and I think obesity in general, it really takes a whole community approach. And so when asked where to start, start where you can, right? Because we need the change. We need the individual change for sure. We need individuals to make healthier choices. There's no question about that. But I could not agree more. That in order to support healthy individual choices or healthy family choices, we need a community that makes those choices easily accessible and affordable. And so, so where do you start with that? So, if you are a restaurant owner, do you have child menus, e- a child menu options even available on your restaurant menu? And are those child menu options Healthy? Do they contain any form of fruit or vegetable at minimum? Structural racism
4: creates health disparities that have been made worse by the pandemic. How has that impacted children along racial lines?
3: You know, one of the things about um, Black Lives Matter and all of the discussion we're having about structural racism is actually a really good thing for childhood obesity because it's really highlighting where we have systems, where we have organizations, agencies, uh, both private and public that could be doing more. And so for example, if a parent does not feel comfortable in a healthcare setting, they're less likely obviously to go seek healthcare, which then may help um, a parent realize that their child has a health concern with their weight issue. I think one of, the, one of the challenges we have is that many individuals in the healthcare system and the educational system were also very reluctant, understandably, to diagnose a child with a condition that may be, may be lifelong because you often sort of hold out the hope that this would change. But what's happening by not being clear with parents and by sending inconsistent messages, we're then not really making it clear to parents about the importance of this issue and what it's going to mean long term, not only for their child, but the well-being of their whole family.
4: I've been speaking with San Diego State Professor of Public Health, Dr. Guadalupe Ayala. Dr. Ayala, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: You're
4: listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Governor Gavin Newsom signed the Momnibus Act into law to address racial disparities in maternal and infant health this week. The new law will put resources behind growing and diversifying the midwifery workforce, extend California's Medicaid coverage for doulas, and extend Medi-Cal eligibility for mothers up to 12 months after giving birth. The new law aims to reduce maternal and infant mortality rates, particularly among Black women and babies who are much more likely to die due to structural racism that causes complications in pregnancy and birth. Mashariki Kadumu, Director of Maternal and Infant Health for March of Dimes Greater Los Angeles, worked on the new legislation and joins us now. Mashariki, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. First, let's talk about the problems this bill is trying to address. Overall, the U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world. But for Black women, giving birth uh, is even more dangerous. What do statistics in California reveal?
6: Sure. What well, we see in California, there was a recent report put out by the California Department of Public Health that shows the pregnancy-related mortality ratio for Black women is four to six times higher than their counterparts. And so that ratio is actually increasing. So we're seeing the disparities gap widen. We see in California, that Black women have a preterm birth rate that's about 43% higher than their counterparts. And we also see that in San Diego County. So in San Diego County, Black women have a higher preterm birth rate that's higher than the county average, as well as higher than the state average. And we also see that with our Native American moms as well. So our Native American indigenous moms also have preterm birth rates that are higher than their other counterparts. We also see that the infant mortality rate is higher for Black women in California. Um, So for Black women, what we see is that these disparities really exist, regardless of income, socioeconomic status, education. And so that widening really does look at structural racism, some of the structural barriers that Black women encounter that other women do not.
4: And let's dig into that more. I mean, what do we know about what's causing higher mortality rates for Black pregnant women and Black and Native American infants?
6: A couple things are happening. It is the um, lack of risk-appropriate care. So not having a provider in your Community that can take care of you if you're having a heart condition, if you have a high risk pregnancy. In California, there's about Um, Nine counties that don't have um, an obstetric provider, we call them maternity deserts. So they don't have enough obstetric providers or enough um, hospitals. And so really trying to travel the distance to get to appropriate care, to get to your hospital. And that's one thing that this bill will help do when we look at growing and diversifying the midwifery workforce and having more midwives in areas where women can have access to more care. so it's also to the experience that Black women um, encounter when they seek medical care. And so, you know, I know from my own experience um, of being disrespected and not listened to when my baby was in the NICU. I know from my sister's experiences, and we all have college degrees, San Diego State do Stanford, Berkeley, um, and we all have faced these challenges. And I hear it from my friends who are college educated who aren't listened to, who are their pains dismissed when they know something is not right. They um, aren't listened to in the healthcare space. So implicit bias, it really is impacting the care that folks receive and the care that is given.
4: And Mashariki, I can relate to everything you just said, because I, too, share in that experience. Um, you know, one way this bill would address those causes is by increasing access to doulas and midwives. What's the impact of having a doula or midwife?
6: Sure. So there is research that shows that having a doula and midwife or midwife really reduces some of the adverse outcomes. So lowers the C-section rate, increases rates of breastfeeding as well as patient satisfaction. And so all those things really point to lower healthcare costs, right? Um, better outcomes and better improved patient experience. And so having that support, having the support of a doula with you, not only during birth, but before to help with some of the prenatal education, you know, afterwards um, and postpartum to be able to help with some of the maternal warning signs um, to help you navigate not only the healthcare system, but some of the community resources that you need. And midwifery care also does the same thing. And so what we see is just that lack of connection a lot of times between OB providers and the community and OB providers not always knowing where to send their patients for you know, help with food or housing or mental health resources. And the community dualism and midwives really do have that impact and have those connections. I was on Medi-Cal when I was in graduate school and pregnant. I had midwifery care um, at UCSD, and I had a doula. And all of that really did impact my care, increased my satisfaction, and just feeling supported through the process.
4: Beyond increasing access to doulas and midwives, what else would the California Momnibus Act do?
6: Yes, it'll do a few other things. It will um, improve data collection with our maternity mortality review committees, as well as our our fetal and infant mortality review committees as well. We know when there's better data collection about the causes of deaths, when they're preventable, we can make better decisions regarding um, programs, services, system changes, not only in the hospital, but also in the community as well. So having better data collection will um, improve outcomes, will improve programs. Also too, what it'll do, um, it will develop a work group for the doula uh, medical benefit to make sure, um, to help with the state implementing the program. So making sure that everyone who wants a doula can get one. It also to reduce some of the cumbersome. Um, barriers for works for women who are pregnant. So women who are pregnant who are on works, there's an increase in the supplement that they'll get. And this is the first increase that's happened in almost 40 years. It'll also re, um, remove the uh, welfare to work requirement for pregnant women who, who are, have works. So what that really does, it, it allows women um, to have more resources. It allows them to now have these requirements that'll really kind of sometimes are burdensome and get in the way of just them um, seeking care. And also there's a pilot for a guaranteed basic income that prioritizes pregnant women. And so this is income that's no string attached um, that will give families more resources. And so the research shows that there's a couple different Um, Programs that have this guaranteed basic income, one coming out of Stockton, um, that show that this extra money, no string attached, reduces stress, improves mental health, and also improves um, people's economic opportunities because then you are able to take time off work to get child care, to go to the job that'll give you benefits, that'll give you full-time employment. Um, so it was interesting that it came out that the extra income improves economic opportunities, it reduces stress, which we know increased stress puts women at more risk for preterm birth.
4: Do you think uh, overall that the Momnibus Act does as much to address structural racism in healthcare as it does to address income inequality?
6: It does. I think what it will do is it'll improve access. And when we look at improved access to healthcare, quality of healthcare services and resources, we know that that'll reduce some of um, the, reduce the disparities and the adverse outcome. So what impacts a woman's health and her birth outcomes is not just her access, You know whether or not she shows up at the doctor, right? It is, does she live in a safe community? Does she have um, access to transportation? Does she have access to healthy foods and opportunities to move her body? Is she going to a provider who can address all her issues? So when we talk about women having access to midwives, doulas, extra income with the CalWORK supplement, extra income with the guaranteed basic income pilot, those will improve healthcare. Um, Those will improve outcomes. But what we know, Jade, is that this is just a step, that there is more work that needs to be done. What SB 65 does, and Mom and Buzz does, Bill does, is reimagine what pregnancy, and birth can look like for our families. But we know that we also have to reimagine systems that are more responsive, that are more respectful, that really do seek to improve patient outcome, safety, and experience. So while this bill does a lot, we know that there is still more work to be done.
4: I've been speaking with Mashariki Kadumu, Director of Maternal and Infant Health for March of Dimes, Greater Los Angeles. Mashariki, thank you so much for joining us. A half
1: dozen or so wildfires still burning in Northern California are all now at least 75% contained. But through the summer, mega fires like the Dixie and Caldor blazes threatened homes and communities and even a part of California's heritage, the giant sequoias, which can live for thousands of years. At least 30 of the giant trees in Sequoia National Forest were destroyed by fire last month. That's on top of the 10 to 15 percent of all the state sequoias that were destroyed by fire last year. Since wildfire in California is expected to become more frequent and intense, tense. Experts are struggling to find ways to protect California's great ancient forests. And joining me is Kurt Peacock. He is an ISA certified arborist with Tree San Diego. And Kurt, welcome to the program.
7: Thank you for having me.
1: Tell us about the sequoias. Are they only found here in California?
7: Yes, the giant sequoias that we refer to are found only here in California, And the giant sequoia is a separate species from the coast Redwood.
1: And how long do the giant sequoias live? How big do they grow?
7: The largest living thing on Earth is the General Sermon giant sequoia in Kings Canyon National Park. And they can grow to be well over 200, approaching 300 feet tall, and live somewhere between two and as many as four or 5,000 years. Do
1: we have many ancient giant sequoia groves in California? How many are there?
7: We really don't. Extensive logging in the late 19th century and early 20th century reduced some of the biggest giants, and they were taken down before preservation could occur. And that is why the National Park Service protected them, because there were so few after logging was done to much of the big old growth stands.
1: And what about in Southern California? Do the giant sequoias only grow in the north?
7: Yes, they have a very limited range, uh, at least currently, to the higher elevations of the Sierra. Attempting to grow them here in Southern California just leads to very unhappy trees because we tend to have, you know, not enough moisture and not enough humidity for their liking.
1: Now, these huge wildfires in Northern California this year and last year have raised the alarm about the survival of these trees. How severely do you think they're threatened?
7: I would rate it as moderate to severe, given the current conditions and the intensities of these recent wildfires.
1: Now recently we heard about a technique of wrapping the bottoms of the trees with foil to try to protect them. Here's Stan Hill, he's a U.S. Forest Service Deputy Forest Management Officer.
0: The idea behind the foil is to protect structures and sometimes trees, other things, in
7: places that we, where a fire is going to impact it.
1: Now have we seen this
7: method work to save these big trees? In the case of the General Sherman, that was a tree that was wrapped, and it was successful at preventing uh, lower ignition and climbing the ladder, as we call it in fire, into the canopy of the tree. So it it was a very iconic tree and, you know, a very special tree, and uh, the Materials seemed to protect it, although they did lose in this last fire. They did lose one of the larger ones in the grove, not nearly the general Sherman size, but they were able to, you know, the Forest Service and all Cal Fire and all they do were able to save the majority of those trees.
1: Now, wrapping the foil around the bottom, I, I'm confused because don't trees usually catch fire from the top?
7: The thing is what happens in classic fire scenario is that they have what they call a fuel ladder in most forests. Debris builds up on the forest floor that then ignites and then climbs a ladder into the canopies of the trees. And one of the saving graces for the sequoias is that many of them don't begin branching until 60 or more than 100 feet into the air. So the fuel ladder is a huge leap from the forest floor debris to get to that upper canopy. With younger trees and other pines, that's not the case. And that's why those forests burn much more readily when ignited. Is this foil
8: or
1: some similar structure on the bottom around these trees, is that a practical idea to try to save the giant sequoia?
7: In large scale, I, I don't think so because of the cost. I mean, it was a great thing to do to that special iconic tree, you know, the largest living thing on earth. Uh, and I think that was definitely warranted. But more has to be done for, you know, fuel management to prevent the fires from reaching the intensity that they have recently. Now, other than
1: wildfires, what other environmental challenges are facing these giant sequoias?
7: Our changing climate and the intensity of storms and then, of course, especially the lack of snowpack in the Sierras, which is what they count on and you realize over the last few years, we've had very up and down winters. Um, snowpack 70% below normal, I believe, one of the last two years. And that can be devastating for them because without enough moisture and without enough cold, they don't function as properly. And then they sometimes will become like the pines, susceptible to boring beetles. And why is saving the giant sequoia so important? because there's such a limited range, is that they're iconic. There is no other tree that comes close to mass and size. And we know from historic fossil records, even, that the sequoia, giant sequoias used to occupy a huge, huge section of North America, historically. And over the hundreds of thousands of years, that range has shrunk down to that last population at the top of the Sierras, and, you know, man-made impact, and what we do, and climate change, has, you know, caused them, their population to dwindle. But the extinction of any species on this planet is a tragedy, especially something as massive and majestic as those giant sequoias.
1: I've been speaking with Kurt Peacock. He is an ISA certified arborist with Tree San Diego. Kurt, thank you so much.
7: You're very welcome.
4: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The California Report magazine visits some of the best secret spots across the state for their yearly hidden gym show. One of this year's is a tiny treat shop in San Jose's Japantown. The Shuedu Manju was established back in 1953, and the mochi made here by hand is so soft and so pillowy. On Instagram, followers describe it as baby cheeks. So naturally, KQED's Rachel Myro volunteered to
8: sample all the flavors. To be honest, shuei-do is no hidden gem. The word has been out for almost 70 years now, and there's almost always a line at this little shop on Jackson Street, the main drag in San Jose's Japantown. Gene Takahashi from the Takahashi Market in San Mateo, another hidden gem, by the way, drives down twice a week to pick up 40 pieces of mochi on Thursdays, 80 to 90 on Saturdays.
7: I have a legion of addicts that come shopping at my store looking for this.
8: If Takahashi miscalculates demand and the treats don't sell out, he'll be unable to resist eating what's left, especially the kanako. That's the mochi filled with white lima bean paste, covered on the outside with soybean flour.
7: Well, there's a trick to eating it. You have to make sure and take a breath first before you bite it so you don't inhale and <laughs> sneeze and get a brown powder in the air. <laughs>
8: Japanese tea time sweets are called wagashi, and there are hundreds of varieties. The owners here specialize in mochi. Those are the sweets made with glutinous rice pounded into a paste and steamed, then molded into something the size of a golf ball, filled with white lima or red azuki bean paste, and lightly dusted so they don't stick to your hand. Also, you've got to try their chichidango, made with rice flour and cut into squares. On the day I visited, wobbly pink strawberry chichidango was the featured special. But back in the kitchen, Tom and Judy Kumamaro were making mm, the peanut butter mochi. It's just pillowy goodness. Mm. <laughs> That's what I love. I love it when someone bites into it and they just
7: go, oh, they like it, you know? Mm.
8: Their kitchen is tiny and packed with ancient copper kettles, giant steaming baskets, a baker's oven, and a simple wooden table for assembly. The two of them move with steady, practiced ease, pinching off the mochi paste, pressing with fingers to make a space for the filling, spoon a little in, and close the confection.
9: So everything's handmade, so it just goes by feel.
8: Tom and Judy didn't start out in sweets. She was a dental technician. He worked for an electronics company. It so happens Judy's parents were pals with the original husband and wife team that launched Chue Do Manju Shop in 1953. So when they were ready to retire in the late 1980s, Judy's parents asked,
5: Oh, if none of your kids want it, let me know if you want to sell.
8: and lined up a transfer of ownership. There are machines now that can churn out thousands of mochi in an hour. But in a world where many are prettier to look at than tasty to eat, it matters to the kumamaros that their preservative-free, country-style mochi tastes the way they like it, soft, fresh, not too sweet. Sometimes we have people buying, and they open the box outside, and they put the whole thing in their mouth, and they'll eat like three, four of them. Somehow, 34 years have passed since Tom and Judy started. The original owners, the Ozawas, lasted 35. So are the Kumamaro kids going to take over? It's hard for just one to take over. You would need a few people in order to get all this done. So it's still up in the
6: air. They're still not safe.
8: Don't wait to pay a visit. There are no wrong choices, but I recommend the peanut butter. Call ahead and make sure it hasn't sold out. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Miro in San Jose.
1: San Diego Italian Film Festival returns in person on Thursday at the Museum of Photographic Arts. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando gets a preview with the festival's artistic director Antonio Iannotta.
5: Antonio, the San Diego Italian Film Festival finally got back to in-person events last month. So how did it feel to finally reconvene with a real audience?
9: Well, Beth, it was wonderful. It was really amazing and, uh, and also emotional. Finally, you know, to use our whole body and not just our heads in a screen, uh, it, felt, it felt really good. But, you know, being there and exchanging ideas, exchanging conversations, exchanges our presence, uh, laughing together, being uh, terrorized together, crying together is uh, one of the most important things when we go in a theater and share uh, a story and an emotion. But everybody was happy and everybody had uh, a very, a very good experience. So we look forward to more events in person.
5: Well, I think being home alone during this pandemic and watching so many films and events via Zoom... I think people may be forgetting the importance of that communal aspect of watching a film.
9: Yeah, watching a film or whatever, you know, arts uh, uh, event in person. But when they're there, uh, everybody felt something, uh, something different. So I think it's really important. And, uh, um, and it's worth the effort because when we're there, we see that much more than, uh, you know, what we can do. Via, via Zoom or via whatever, you know, whatever app on the screen. Don't get me wrong, we had a beautiful experience these last 16, 18 months. I don't even want to count because we had, we had the possibility to engage in conversations and discussions with so many guests from Italy that for, you know, a small festival like ours it's something priceless. But being there with actual human beings and, uh, and share an experience, uh, it's something completely different.
5: So last month, your monthly film series went back to in-person, and this week, the actual festival is returning to in-person. So you are opening on Thursday night. And what are you planning for this opening night?
9: We're planning something, uh, something special, uh, an extraordinary movie based on uh, also an extraordinary novel that is also available uh, in English, Lacci is the title in Italian and in English is The Ties. It's a movie about uh, uh, how a family can stick together if uh, love disappears. And uh, I'm not going to tell more (laughs) in, in terms of the plot, but in terms of the structure, of the movie, it's really interesting because we start in Naples uh, at the beginning of the 80's and all of a sudden the characters the father, the mother and the two kids, we are uh, forward, you know, 30 years from now so we have these time structures back and forward where it seems at at a certain point it seems like a science fiction movie but it's very rooted, you know, in family values and family pressures and how to try not to ruin too much the life of our children. Uh, it's a very powerful movie, it's a very strong movie and you know the overall theme for this Festivale is, uh, is resilience. So we have movies that really deal with that. We couldn't pick another theme for this year, of course, but, you know, we, we are addressing that as the art of resilience, because we really believe that art and film and cinema, in this case in particular, can can change our lives and we can rely on that in moments where, you know, literally the world is falling apart. And so through the cinema, through our movies, we believe we can not only resist, but even thrive and become hopefully better human beings.
5: And another thing about the festival that people may not be aware of if they haven't gone is your focus is on contemporary Italian cinema. And how does this film reflect what's going on in Italian cinema right now? Is it representative of
9: what's going on in Italy? Absolutely. It's uh, it's uh, um, we curate very, you know, attentively what's going on right now in 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 cinema in in Italy, in the theater, so mainstream movies, and in festival where you have maybe you know uh, movies that don't circulate so much around you know the the bigger cities, independent movies. So the effort is to have a real real window on. Italian cinema today as if uh, uh, we were in Italy right now and in like uh, in Rome as well as at the Venice Film Festival. So the the effort is really to to bring a variety of genres, a variety of approaches, a variety of perspectives on what we consider the best contemporary Italian movies. So we have movies like Lacci uh, tomorrow night, uh, that was the opening film at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, not this year, last year when we were in the in uh, you know in the middle of the pandemic. And at the same time we have movies that are very very small, low budget, independent that are pretty much impossible to watch if you don't come to our festival. Like October the eighth, a, a wonderful documentary about Rione Sanità that is uh, a neighborhood in uh, in Naples, again in Naples, uh, that tell us uh, an incredible story of resilience uh, around a a, a church, a priest uh, that put together a bunch of uh, youth uh, of uh, Neapolitan, uh, very educated uh, young boys and girls that were able to transform uh, some uh, part of the uh, arts uh, patrimony in Naples uh, into a business. Huh? So it's an incredible story. And the fact that we have two movies about Naples, uh, one after the other, reflects on the status of the importance of the film art in Naples today. Now, I had the
5: pleasure of serving on the jury for the Restretto Awards. And explain what this is, because in addition to showing feature films, you have a focus on short films.
9: Yes, this is the third edition of, of our Restretto Awards. It's a film festival dedicated to shorts. It's open not only to Italian directors from Italy but to everybody that can focus on an Italian Uh, theme or Italian-American theme or something that deals with uh, our culture or an interpretation of our culture. So uh, during the festival online, this is one of the content available online, uh, our audience can watch the 16 shorts that made into the final and also vote for them. And during our gala uh, October 23rd we will announce the winners of the competition and we will screen the winners.
5: All right, well, I wanna thank you very much for talking about the now back to in-person San Diego Italian Film
9: Festival. Thank you, Beth, we're back.
5: That was Beth Accomando speaking with
1: Antonio Iannotta. San Diego Italian Film Festival runs tomorrow through October 30th, both online and at the Museum of Photographic Arts.